Hey folks, it's Mike. We've got a wonderful conversation to share with you in this episode. Our friend Alberto Cairo has just published a brand new book called The Art of Insight, which I promise you is unlike any book on visualization you've read to date. I was lucky enough to spend some time chatting with Alberto this week, and he was, as ever, inspiring, supportive, informative, inspirational, and, yes, even insightful. But before we jump into the conversation, I wanted to take a moment to thank everyone who's been a part of a Storytelling with Data workshop this year. As I record this, we've just finished our final public session of 2023, and getting to meet so many enthusiastic and dedicated people who are eager to develop their communication skills is a rare privilege for me and for my fellow data storytellers, and it is always a pleasure to get to spend time with all of you. If you haven't been able to be a part of our sessions yet, or if you're interested in joining us again, you'll be pleased to know that our entire schedule of 2024 sessions is available now on our website. We have multiple virtual sessions planned for our foundational Storytelling with Data workshop. The next one is slated for February 1st. There's a new workshop we're offering called Storytelling with Slides that focuses on two key elements of successful presentations, your visuals and you. Our next running of that workshop will be on March 6th. We also have an immersive eight-week course. It'll be running once in the spring, once in the fall, and it is an extensive exploration of data storytelling for business communications. The spring course begins on January 15th, so I would encourage you to act quickly if you are interested in that. And last but not least, we'll have two full-day in-person masterclasses, one in Europe in April and one in the U.S. in September. There's more information about all of these sessions at storytellingwithdata.com public workshops. And for any of our workshops and classes, we have a special offer for our podcast listeners. Use promo code PODCAST10, that's PODCAST10, when you register for any of our sessions to get a 10% discount. We hope to see you in one of our workshops soon. And now, here's our conversation with Alberto Cairo. Welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast, where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters. We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Mike. Alberto Cairo is an educator, an illustrator, a board game enthusiast, a parent, a journalist, a heavy metal aficionado, a mentor, and according to an insightful colleague, a caretaker of the lost. He's the author of best-selling books, The Functional Art, The Truthful Art, and How Charts Lie, but has recently published his fourth English language book, The Art of Insight, and we could not be more pleased to have the opportunity to have him as our guest. Alberto, welcome. Hi, Mike. Very, very nice to be here. I mean, so, so great to speak with you today. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm really excited to talk to you about many things, but particularly about The Art of Insight, your recent book. Now, the first two that I mentioned are much more instructional. How Charts Lie, more about consumers. The Art of Insight is a definite departure from the previous three. To give people a sense of how different it is, please allow me to share the fact that on the very first page of the introduction, you're sharing an anecdote where you tell your son in direct answer to a question about the purpose of human beings is life is indeed meaningless in itself. <laughs> Which I truly believe. 
I have been heavily influenced by certain thinkers throughout throughout my life, and one of them is the famous French author, writer, and Nobel Prize winner Albert Camus, uh, or Camus. That's how you write it. Um, who is usually labeled as an existentialist, although he wasn't an existentialist. That's a misconception. But he also believed that all that matters in life, essentially, is like there's nothing really transcendent about, about life. He believed that human life needs to be for, cherished for, for what it is, and that life indeed has a meaning. He didn't believe that, that life was meaningless. But this type of meaning is something that we all build together in a community. And we build this meaning in life through a deep observation of, the, of our surroundings, deep appreciation for the beauties of nature and also for the future, for the beauty of other human beings. We build it also through conversations with other people and friendships and obviously uh, love relationships and other types of relationships. And we also build this type of meaning through the work that we produce. The work that we, that we do is not simply or can be not simply a job that we are paid for but also uh, something that brings meaning to human existence. And that's essentially what I try to, what I try to convey to my, to my kid, who is a very brilliant 12 year old that sometimes asks questions that are very difficult to answer. It's nice to know like 12 year olds, they aren't burdened by the expectations that these are questions that we are not supposed to ask. These are questions that make us uncomfortable, or these are questions that adults might take as something that is not discussed in polite company. And when you get that direct question, it's fortunate that he has uh, a father who can say, well, you're right. Uh, yeah. Life is like meaningless, but we build that. That doesn't, it's not that it is meaningless, it's that the meaning that life has is not something that is intrinsic to life itself or that is uh, cast on us by any sort of like superior or transcendental power. Is something that we do have the power to 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 build, and I connect that. That was the it, 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 that anecdote which happened in November of two thousand and twenty-one. I remember the date perfectly well, and that conversation and how it happened, and the way that I describe it in the book is actually a very faithful uh, description of it. I I thought at the time. I mean, this is the perfect introduction to the book because this is essentially what the book is about. Uh, the book is about. It's not about the work. It's about people and how people's uh, motivations and values influence what they do and how that creates an ethos, a way to behave in the world and to be in the world. But at the same time, in return, how the craft or the trade that we all practice, data visualization understood in a very broad sense of the word, how it shapes us back, right? How we, how we bring me, how we bring meaning through data visualization, but also how we acquire meaning through the use of data visualization as well. It's a very interconnected way of looking at what we practice and what the world is. And it is a very interesting way to begin a book that is probably not what many people would expect when they pick it up for the first time based on your existing corpus of work. Yeah, but if I if I kept writing the same books over and over again, I would bore myself to tears and uh, for instance, several times have uh, I've been approached by to do to do second editions of my previous books, and I don't think that I will ever do that uh, ever. Uh, just because I wrote those books at the time when I felt that they needed to be written, 
I still agree with much of what I wrote in those, not with everything. I, my, mm -hmm. my, my thought has evolved quite a lot throughout the years. And they are a product of their time. So going, and I don't see my books as, um, sort of like a, a supplement to my, to my classes or to my workshops, right? The other people do is like, I mean, Cole, uh, and, and other people, they use their own books in, in workshops. And so do I, right? And, and they're, but, but the, my approach is completely different. I see my books, all of them, including the art of insight, which is perhaps the most explicit in this, in, in this sense, in saying these. I envision my previous books as essays, uh, as ways of uh, playing around with ideas without the goal of reaching any particular conclusion. I just like to ponder ideas, play around with them. And sometimes I disagree with myself 10 years ago, and that's perfectly fine. And again, they are product of their, of their, of their time. But indeed, I mean, this book is extremely different in many different senses, which is a good thing. I think it's, I guess, it's a, I think it's a, it's a good next step in my, in my writing career. In the sense that, as you say, your work influences you and you influence your work and the world, like everything is interconnected. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that this, book was meant to inspire people to be enthusiastic about visualization, maybe as enthusiastic as people were when they first discovered the field. Mm -hmm. But that to me implies something, which is, does that mean that somewhere along the way you lost your enthusiasm? Oh yeah, absolutely I did. And I think that all of us who were, who have worked in a field for so many years at some point will lose a little bit of perspective and, 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 and we tend to, um, we also tend to forget that there is a whole world out there. Uh, it is very easy to uh, um, assume that everything out there looks like it looks like inside of our heads, okay. uh, when in reality, and and, and then the, and that the only way to practice a craft like visualization is the way that we practice it. And what I try to explain in the book is that we all fall prey to that impulse, but at the same time, when we expose ourselves to other people in the field and to their work and the way that they see the world and the way that they use data visualization in their world and for the world, we understand that this is a very diverse craft, a very diverse way of doing things. And I really appreciate that. So. I just wanted to build that appreciation or, re or rebuild it and, and cast, a, cast my sight out there and, and cast a very white net and, and, and then talk to people and get inspired again. Which that to me explains why you share so much of the space in this book with other folks whose work it seems like you admire or maybe you admire these specific people. Mm -hmm. personally not just for their work but for... it's, it's not the work it, yeah. it's it that is one of the messages of the book yeah. although it's not maybe explicit in the book but i hope that people will grasp that that is implicit in what i say i don't care that much about the work mm -hmm. uh the work is important though you i want obviously much of the work that i reproduce in the book is book that i sorry is a work that i that i really like but i think that the work is a reflection of what a of what people are and how people are and that is what I want to really uh, dig into. Right? So who are, where do they come from? How, what types of experiences shape them? Uh, how their the political or cultural environments of the countries where they live shape the way that they 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 undertake the projects that they make. Those are the types of things that I'm interested in. The work is a byproduct of all that of who we are. And the work is also a reflection, which is actually quite important. 
I have never seen the fields that I have practiced, the crafts that I have practiced throughout the years, both, uh, you know, anything from journalism to information design in general, information graphics, visual explanations, 3D modeling, and then data visualization eventually beginning in the 2010s. I don't see them just as work. I, I see them as ways of being in the world. I mean, they are intrinsic part of who I am as a person, which is something that I describe uh, in the epilogue of the book, which is that, I mean, the work shapes us and, and we shape the work, but, and this, this interchange between what we do and, and we are is essential to our, to our being. And that's a good thing. It's a beautiful thing. Yeah, it is a celebration, I think, of the human beings behind the work that you say is sort of the, the byproduct of what's happening, but it is what are people doing? How are they living? Where are they in the world and just in society? that brings us these different perspectives or these different experiences that you are very explicitly sharing with us in this book. And, it and, a, and, a, like... and approaches, approaches that are in dialogue with each other, mm -hmm. with, which mm -hmm. is another one of the themes of the book. I don't see, I mean, more and more I see visualization as a, as a, as a multifaceted craft. And that's the reason why I try to group the people I spoke with in, into different beings, right? The, the eccentrics, Mm -hmm. Or try to push forward the, the field and experiment with new ways or applying data visualization to new areas. Um, the ambassadors who try to bring knowledge about visualization and data science and statistics in general to the public or who try to explore the history of visualization in places where it has not been explored yet. So people who explore the, 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 the fringes of the, of the field or who try to bring more people into the into the field, which is something that I'm really interested in, democratizing it, democratizing data visualization and bringing more people into data visualization. The communicators or the narrators, which are people more similar to, to uh, who I am, uh, journalists in, in general. And, and then the pragmatists, what I call the pragmatists, people who are not necessarily from our field, uh, but who practice the field and, and they are not aware of the, so to speak, quotation marks, scare quotation marks in their rules of the field, but mm -hmm. they still produce wonderful data visualizations because I, they approach data visualizations as it should be approached, as a language that does have a, a grammar and a syntax and a set of symbols that, that are that are arranged according to that grammar, but that beyond that, it's very similar to writing. There are really no rules of data visualization. They are just, there's just reason in data visualization. That's a, that's a very pragmatist approach, in my opinion. That That's something that I describe in detail in the first part of the book. Yeah, I I had taken notes on a number of those things, especially the, if visualization is a language, many dialects are possible. Yeah. That there are many different ways. Of and I, and I'm, using, I'm using terms from linguistic in a very loose way. Mm -hmm. I know that linguists would probably call me, oh, this is not really a language. But I'm, I, I, I hope that people will be a little bit forbearing with, with the way that I use certain terms. It's like, there is a grammar of graphics. There's a book titled The Grammar of Graphics. Uh, right. So if there is a grammar, well, I assume that this is sort of like a language. And... And the language can be practiced in different ways. It's not only that there are different dialects in data visualization, so to speak, but also that data visualization can have a multiplicity of purposes. Data visualization can be essayistic or explanatory or narrated, which is the type of data visualization that I produce. Data visualization can be exploratory, right? We can create dashboards and other types of graphics to analyze 
data, but data visualization can also be poetic and artistic. And why not? That's still mm -hmm. data visualization because it uses the grammar and the syntax of data of data visualization. So that's that's the reason why I, I make this sort of like analogy between visualization and language. Well, and using analogies is going to be a way to connect with people who understand things in different ways. Yeah. Analogy is one of the great ways of helping things become clearer. And in all of the folks that you have highlighted over the course of this book, even though they have many different areas of interest, expertise, where they're located in the world, there are similarities amongst all of them, it seems, is everybody is curious. Everybody has like a precision. They're keenly interested in the details. They're all creative. They all have an interest in aesthetics. And I think that might have something to do with the inherent interdisciplinary nature of mm -hmm. coming into data visualization is, I think you even mentioned that people come at it from highly quantitative sides and highly visual sides. And this, which, they, is, which is also true of the writing profession. I mean, if you think about writers, I mean, writers have all sorts of backgrounds, right? Because the writing doesn't really define them as, as professionals, as, 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 as practitioners or someone who has a degree in a particular area. The same thing through data visualization is a multidisciplinary endeavor that requires knowledge from many different fields. And it is true. There are many commonalities among, you know, among the people I, 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 I spoke with. I mean, the fact that they are, it's not that they are just curious. They are hungrily curious. Mm -hmm. It's it's sort of like an obsession with uh, discovering new things, learning new things, and 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 in some cases, learning new things we we have an extremely depth. It's like an extreme degree of depth, like getting really into the things that they read about. So it's not a superficial understanding. They 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 feel the need to learn a lot about what they are going to visualize about, even if they are not going to use that, all that knowledge, uh, which is, again, something that doesn't only define people in visualization. In some sense, it, sense it also defines people in, in journalism. Nobody becomes a journalist because they want to become a specialist in one area. Uh, we come into journalism because we want to be generalists and actually touch upon many different things, learn about different things. So it's, a, I mean, it's a just, again, just a way of being in the world. It's a, a way to be in the world. Yeah. Aaron Williams being one of the people in the book who you uh, talk with and talked about, yeah, as a journalist, you have to learn things very quickly oh, yeah. and become well-versed on a lot of different topics right away because your skill isn't necessarily being a subject matter expert. Exactly. Your skill is being able to understand a whole bunch of information all at once and then, and then making it and, make and sense then, and, then find, and then find the right people to spoke with in order to increase mm -hmm. your understanding having a, a, an agenda of contacts and sources that you can consult when you're working on a project. It's an, a skill on its own. Uh, yeah, Aaron talks a little bit about that. He, he's someone who makes it, made the transition between uh, journalism and, and tech, uh, which is a very interesting transition. He discusses that in the, in the conversation that, that we had, but it's still he has sort of like that journalistic trait, personality trait in him, I believe. Talking about him, I apologize in advance, but it is 2023 and I am legally obliged to ask a question about artificial intelligence in every conversation that we have in 2023. And that question is, how concerned might you be about tools being out there that can simulate the skills of somebody like Aaron Williams and appear to generate meaningful narratives with ease? 
in, in a way that sort of undermines the actual sort of learned experience of somebody uh, like Aaron, like any journalist. Um, how concerned should we be? I mean, we should be as concerned as we are about any other technology that facilitates the work and lowers the barrier of entry to anybody in the field, which means that in my case is not that much. Um, <laughs> uh, all right. So let, let me, let me add some caveats. In some sense, I see artificial intelligence in a similar way that I saw, let's say, Adobe Illustrator or Photoshop 30 years ago. I remember that a discourse that was very common in news media at the time, 30 years ago or 30-something years ago, when Photoshop was launched and adopted in newsroom, saying, this is going to end the work of uh, photo editors mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. anybody and everybody is going to be able to just click on a couple of buttons and get great results. And, and that didn't happen. True, there was a transformation in the photo editing industry. Uh, there was some turmoil, but at the very, I mean, the very end, we still have photo editors. We still need people who adopt the tool, understand the tool, and then can make informed choices about how to properly use the, use the tool. So artificial intelligence, if it, if it is used in a proper way, will, may act in a similar fashion. It will be something that will extend our capacities. It may lower the barrier of entry to the fields. I think that it is wonderful, for example, that today I can avoid writing long lines of R code to generate my charts and I can describe the R code that I need in natural language and then the, uh, the, the, the artificial intelligence text generator will spit out decent code that I can then tweak, right? Mm -hmm. And then I can add the variables that I need, et cetera, in order to generate a chart, for example. I think that that is wonderful. Now, are there, are there dangers in these types of technologies? I believe, obviously, yes, that there are. But discussing what those dangers may be, I think, is way above my, my, my pay grade. Uh, so I, don't, I cannot make any predictions about that. But I'm, I'm not fearful. I'm not afraid. I think that there's always... There's going to be a role for people making decisions. I think that companies will understand that you need people to make these types of choices, no matter how rich and detailed your algorithms are. Uh, you still need the people to make the final call about a particular insight that you extract from data. And if they don't understand, it is, well, good luck with to you because you are going to, you are going to run into a lot of problems. You could be efficient, but also ineffective. And exactly. That That's a very, a very good way of putting it. At this point, let's take a sidebar. Let's talk about board games. Oh, yeah. So, because part of what this book is, is about people's passions and about people following those passions to where they lead them. And some of them are more frivolous and some of them are more meaningful. And board games can be both. I personally tried out Twilight Struggle because you mentioned it at one point in time. And I found how, how was a, that? For me, it's a very complex board game, but I also <laughs> understand the history of the Cold War a little bit. So I was taken by it once I found an iPad that could run the electronic version of it without crashing. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm curious, what are you playing these days? And, and are there things in the board game world that are exciting to you or disappointing maybe to you? Yes. So... Directly or indirectly, my passion for games took me to data visualization and infographics. So, for example, I got interested in mapping 
in, in cartography because I was playing role-playing games when I was mm -hmm. a teenager. Things such as people, oh, everybody knows Dungeons and Dragons. Right? So I play a little bit of Dungeons and Dragons, but and then I, I moved on and started playing more interesting games such as oh. RuneQuest or Call of, Call of Cthulhu. These are all mm -hmm. very good role-playing games that are much richer and much more interesting thematically and narratively than, than Dungeons and Dragons. And also mechanically, the mechanics are much more interesting the rules. So I started getting interested in mapping just because I needed to draw maps for the, uh -huh, for the games. Right. And I started getting into cartography, things, things that I think that games also helped me become better at math because many of these games require, you know, calcul calculations of probability, for example, mm -hmm. and not role playing games. Now I can talk about other types of games that I like which are um, historical games, particularly historical war games, games that simulate historical conflicts, anything from, you know, the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage. Uh, there are several excellent games related to that. To Twilight Struggle, which is a great game about the Cold War, really good one. Um, anything from, um, thinking about my favorite ones, uh, Here I Stand, which is a simulation of the religious wars after the appearance of Protestantism in Europe. So uh, one, both the players plays the Protestant player, another one is mm -hmm. the Pope, another one is uh, Henry VIII England. And then you need to run your country, the economy of your country, the warfare, your army, whatever. And then you need to also engage in the religious struggle. It's an excellent, excellent game. Much more complex than Twilight Struggle, though. If you found tri oh, wow. Twilight Struggle complicated, I wouldn't recommend this one because the rule book is 60 pages long. <laughs> Look, I, I've got to ramp up. When I see something like Gloomhaven and I feel like oh, I need yeah. a, uh, a, a furniture dolly to get it in the house, like I'm a little intimidated yeah. by it. But in any case, I mean, my interest in games has shaped my interest in, in, in not only in, in communication and data visualization, but also in terms of design. I mean, there's a lot of very good design in, in tabletop, tabletop games. And also, I would say the narrative aspect of these games and the simulational aspect of these games. A data visualization is essentially a simulation of the world. It's like a, taking a snapshot, simplified picture of the world that is out there. And these games are also, in some sense, simulation. They are trying to reproduce reality, but focusing only on the aspects of reality that pertain to the content of the, of the game. Obviously, you cannot reproduce Napoleonic warfare at the individual mm -hmm. level, right? There's another excellent game that I played many years ago called um, Empires in Arms, which is a simulation of the Napoleonic Wars. And again, another very complicated game. All these games got me interested again in, in cartography, mapping, design, mathematics, and probability, because you need to have a good grasp of what the dice may, may roll, depending mm -hmm. on the situation in which you are. Also planning, strategic planning and on an organization and information design, because there's a lot of information design um, in, in these types of games. Have you ever been inspired to do game design then? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. Um, a, one of my future projects, if I ever have time to, to finish it, it's, it's how, how we done. It's a role-playing game, a historical role-playing game with its own system of, of rules. Mm -hmm. I'm curious about it, but for copyright purposes, we can leave it at that <laughs> for, for now. It's a historical game about the, the seventh century. It's, um, a, a, in the Mediterranean, which is the time of the appearance of Islam in Arabia, 
the Roman Empire based in, on Constantinople, the Visigothic Kingdom in Spain, the Lombard Kingdom in Italy, the Frankish Kingdom in France, and then the Berber Kingdoms in, in North Africa. So it's a game that tries to sort of like simulate what life would could have looked like based on historical sources to people living in those ages, which is a very a, 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 an age of extreme turmoil and and societal change. And I have been better testing it with some with some friends. So it's a historically accurate role-playing game, but it's still a role-playing game, meaning, meaning that it has a very strong narrative component. It's like being inside, if you want to, if you want to envision it, it's like being inside a historical novel, right? Sure. That's what it is. That's amazing. And I didn't, I didn't know that you were that versed in history, in, in world history and different eras of history. I didn't know that was an interest of yours. And I'm curious to know if if there are other areas of inspiration or sort of emotional sucker that you turned to maybe in some of the moments when you do feel like you're losing enthusiasm for other things. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So one thing that I, I, I think that I mentioned in, in, a, in the book, I don't know, remember whether I mentioned it, I mean, the out of insight, by the way, but I will mention it here, is that originally I didn't, I didn't want to be a journalist. I just stumbled upon journalism essentially by happenstance. I've always been a reader of history and philosophy. Those are my, those are my passions. But I ended up studying journalism. Just perhaps I didn't want to be an, a specialist in any of those areas. I'm much more interested in being an, an amateur in all these areas. Uh, there's something beautiful about being an amateur. Amateur is a word related to love, amor in, in Spanish, right? So I, I'm a lover of like learning things that, that interest me. So yeah, I mean, two areas or two, two things that I have read extensively and keep reading extensively is first of all, a late antiquity, particularly the, the sixth, seventh and eighth centuries in Europe in particular. So again, the time of the rise of Islam and the wars against the uh, Roman empire, a mis, misnamed as the Byzantine empire. That's not how they, how they call themselves. They call themselves the Romans. So the Byzantine empire and all these other kingdoms that I mentioned before, um, I don't want to sound raggish here, but I'm relatively well read to the point that I sometimes thought about doing some sort of master's degree or even a PhD program in these, in this time, because I read hundreds, literally hundreds of books and PhD dissertations and papers about this period. I have done tons of illustrations. Actually, in, in the other inside, you can see one of the maps that I created. Yeah. Uh, of the Visigothic kingdom. That's an a historically accurate based on uh, sources of the, of the Visigothic kingdom in the seventh century. But I have maps also of the city of Carthage. That, that's a city that has always obsessed me. So I once drew a you know, super large uh, illustration of the floor plan of the city of Carthage in the seventh century based on archaeological sources. So I have tons of papers about that. And, you know, I, I, I loved it. It's, it's something that I probably will never use for anything other than the game if I ever get to publish it, but it's something that really keeps me going. It's something that, that really you know, helps clear up my, my mind. And the other, the other thing is philosophy. It's like reading about a, not philosophy as an academic field, but philosophy more in the sense of how to run, how to conduct a decent and good life. That, that's what I'm most interested in. So I'm, you know, reading the Hellenistic philosophers, Epicureans and the hedonists and stoics, and then more modernly, their more modern counterparts, for example, Abba Camus, who is a 
hedonist in some sense. Well, when you say things like, I, I don't intend to use these for anything, like I don't intend to use these maps for anything, you are using them for something. You're using them for your own enjoyment. You're using to, them for your to, own... To, to have a better life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We don't. Pro we should not produce work just because work is going to pay the is going to pay the bills. Although we do need to pay the bills, that's a priority. Yeah, we tell my students the pro your priority should be to have a good life. But first of all, you need to pay the bills. That's mm -hmm. the most important thing. But at some point in your career, you will start embracing your job if you really enjoy it as a way again as a way of being in the world, and you will do, will do the work for the work's sake, not because it makes you it makes you money. And that puts me in the mind of you have a number of quotes from Mike Montero in your book. Oh yeah, uh, ruined by design was. Uh, I found that particularly motivational. Might have inspired me to make dramatic changes in my own life at some point in time, possibly. But one of the things that he does say is that you quote is as long as you are a designer, you have a responsibility to make the world better for the rest of humanity. You're a human being first, and it is your job to stop those who would denigrate humanity for their own selfish benefit. So my question to you is, how do you respond to somebody who hears this and says, you know, calm down, you're ascribing a little too much importance to or, yourself. Or, or you're being too, too political, which yeah, is something or, that, that or, we... Yeah, or you're, you're just in a corner making graphs, like you don't have that authority, you don't have that much power. But yes, you can't say that, you can't do something like that in public. How would you respond to that? Well, first of all, I would say that people who say you are, you're politicizing the, uh, the profession or you're too political, I would say neutrality uh, or, or, or would say saying neutrality is also political because you are just pretending to be neutral. You're not. You're fully political. What we do is political. And what, what we do political in the sense that is part of the police, is part of the, uh, of living in a civic society. If you think that your work is not political, you're deluding yourself, right? You're delusional. That's the first thing. And second of all, is that if you finally understand that your work is political in the sense of being part of the conversation of the police, you do have a responsibility to contribute to this conversation in a way that is truthful and balanced and decent towards other human beings. And that's it. That, that's what I believe. If you don't believe that, well, then, I mean, you're not part of my conversation. I'm not interested in hearing anything that you have to say. We all need to strive to, to do that. To the extent of our capacities, because I also understand again that we need to pay the bills. And mm -hmm. sometimes, you know, we, we cannot worry that much about, but you can still contribute to the conversation. You can still try to be and strive to be uh, a decent human being that thinks about other human beings when you're producing your work. If you simply do this, you know, even if it is only very slightly, you are still contributing to society. And I know you have sort of walked the walk on this. I know you have never shied away from being publicly political when you felt the need called for it. But I also know that you have felt the the brunt of having spoken out publicly mm -hmm. as well. So yeah. I guess uh, that is to say that not everyone is ready to take that burden on for themselves. But... Yeah, no, I, and I, and I completely understand that. I would like to talk a little bit about power. Sure. Some something that I have come to understand, I actually came to understand these many years ago, but today I understand it a little bit better, is that someone like me or someone like you, um, we have a lot of power. We have a lot of power to shape public conversations. And 
as Spider-Man said, with great power comes great responsibility, right? Which is a great quote. It's a fantastic quote. It's really a really wise quote. So I have come to believe that. So, I mean, we do have this power and we do have this power, whether we like it or not. I've always rejected power. I don't like to have power. I've always rejected to be in charge of anything at the university level. I don't want to have power over anyone. But we do have soft power. That's something that we don't choose to have. And therefore, we better use that power for a, a, for good to the extent of our, of our capacities. And sometimes this will have consequences, but I couldn't care less. For example, very lately, as you know, I have been extremely vocal about how um, news media, mainstream, mainstream media misrepresents the transgender community, which I happen to be very familiar with, or a youth gender affirming care, for example, how, how mainstream media, I'm not talking about right-wing media or hyper-conservative types. No, I'm talking about the New York Times. So I have been extremely outspoken about criticizing how mainstream media uh, misrepresents the existing science around these, these issues. But I think that that's what I need to do. I mean, that's the power that I have. I have the power to change minds or, and even, even if I don't, even if what I say doesn't have any sort of like, but it's sort of consequences, even if I am a consequentialist at heart, uh, I feel that I need to do it. It's something that I cannot avoid doing. That's essentially who I am. I have, I, I, I sometimes I feel that I have a mouth that is a little bit too loud and I try to restrain myself, but not when I feel strongly about, about something. And if there is something that I, I always, I've always hated with all my heart. And there is something about, there's an anecdote in the epilogue that you probably remember about a geography teacher who was essentially mm -hmm. a, a bully. Mm -hmm. So I've always had a very strong allergy towards bullies. And, you know, the LGBTQ community and more in particular, the transgender community in the United States, but not only are being bullied. And my reaction to bullies is always, you don't speak to a bully, you punch back, you punch back. You hit them back harder. And I'm sorry, that, that's the way that I am. Figuratively speaking, by the way. Not necessarily, <laughs> not necessarily physically, always. Oh, I'm a gentleman. Yeah, exactly. However. However, yes. Exactly. My, my, my skill, my, my, my fighting skill is concentrated in other aspects than, than <laughs> my physical comportment. I, ha I have some anecdotes related to that, but we can leave them for another day. <laughs> well, I, I'm, I'm intrigued by the description of of power and soft power. And I, I was taken back to st studying, you know, political science. And I always struck by the idea, like, if you crave power, that should disqualify you from power. It really should only be reluctant holders of power yeah, who, yeah. who have it. And it, if you did not seek it, it, is, I, it seems that you did not, then it almost makes sense that you should. But it is, it is not just, not, it. just not seeking it. Is that mm -hmm. I, I flee from it. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, pretty honest about this. I had this conversation with the other day with Ben Jones, a common friend of ours uh, from data, liter data literacy. And it was this private conversation, but I can disclose what I told him. It's like, if I could retire today and simply disappear from the world and dedicate my life to do other things and perhaps have an impact in other areas, et cetera, I, I would retire. I want to influence the world in some sense, uh, honestly, uh, positively, but I sometimes fear the power that I, the soft power that I have in the visualization community. I am, I have become more wary about 
criticizing any work, for example, because I mm-hmm. know that that may hurt people, not their feelings necessarily, but their career prospects, for example. Uh, and I try to try. I try to stay quiet uh, to be a little bit more silent in the visualization community, and instead work a little bit more on the backstages. As you know, I mean, besides having written this book, I'm also a book editor for CRC Press, and recently edited the work of people like Jen Christensen, who wrote out the wonderful Building Science graphics, or Nigel Holmes, who wrote a joyful infographics, and then I'm, I'm working with several other authors. But from the backstage, just because I don't want to be visible, I just want to give visibility to other people, right? I'm, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I've always, I have always tried to flee from power, from that type of task, because of how seductive it can be, in some sense. Yes, yeah, that I can, that I can understand. But that transitions you into you. You said you thought, well, maybe I want to be more of a mentor. Maybe I want to guide people rather than yeah. be the person out. Yeah. I don't want I don't want to be a thought leader. I really dislike that term. People sometimes think a thought leader. I don't want to be a leader and even less a thought leader. That sounds Orwellian in some sense. That is one of my least favorite business words. Stakeholder is another one of them. Stakeholder, the yeah. Yeah. Ninja. Send <laughs> <laughs> master. Okay. Yes, yeah, send master. Um yeah. now you talked about wanting to sort of withdraw and sort of like hide from the community or not engage in much in the community as much. But that's easier now because, as we were talking about before we started recording, there isn't as easy a place to form a community so mm-hmm. much anymore. The landscape of social media where our communities tended to be has changed. So has the tenor of the conversations on many of those places. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Do you know or do you have a way to make connections like this for yourself? Or maybe to put it another way, where are these halls of kindness that halls we were of trying kindness. to That's find? A, yeah, yeah. Just to clarify, that halls of kindness quote comes from also from Mike Montero, who has this wonderful uh, article that he wrote uh, years ago about the punk, the punk scene. And he, he says that he was welcomed by when he was a teenager and a young adult by the punk community. And mm-hmm. he has that wonderful, absolutely wonderful sentence. Uh, that he lived in these halls of kindness, which is something that I hope that I sometime in the future will be able to use as the title of a book or something. But in any case, first of all, I would like to clarify that it's not that I don't, I want to disappear from the community, from the visualization mm-hmm. community is that I don't want anyone who approaches me to see me as, again, as a thought leader. I want a community that is much more horizontal. I'm just Alberto Cairo. I'm just, just sure. I mean, I've been in this field for 30 years, but I know nothing. I know very little. I know probably as much as, you know, any other, any other person. So the community needs to be much more horizontal. It's only that I, I, I like to work from the back, backstage. For example, people approach me all the time on a, on a one-on-one basis. I need career advice, or I don't know where I'm going. Can you help me? And I would say yes. I always try to find time to meet one-on-one with uh, with people. And perhaps oh, I always precede those conversations saying, this is just my opinion and my personal view. So I'm not going to tell you what to do or how, but I will tell you how I would do things, which is not necessarily the way that you should do them. So if you want to borrow from, which is also my approach to visualization teaching, it's like, this is, I don't teach how to make visualizations. I, in my classes, I teach how I make visualizations, mm-hmm. which may be a slightly different to other people. 
Uh, but in any case, uh, it's not that I flee from the communities, that I would like to be perceived as having less power than I do and, and, and actually surrender any type of power that I have in the community. Where to find, you know, community these days? I honestly don't know. I mean, before Twitter was one of the places where we gathered together, but as many other things, the idiot Elon, Elon Musk destroyed, destroyed that. Um, what other places? I mean, I'm on Blue Sky. LinkedIn may become one of those places. I'm slightly more engaged right now on link with LinkedIn, but I, I honestly don't know. I'm a little bit lost uh, on that, on that side of things. I honestly don't know where to find people yet. I'm still finding my way. Well, that's somewhat reassuring because I think as are we all. So there, there's one way in which we are not going to turn to you as a thought leader. We will just be a thought exchanger. And See, a, thought exchanger a, a thought, a a thought sharer. Yeah, yeah. And I was hoping to be a thought follower for a minute there. But <laughs> Well, I know that our time is coming to a close, but I do want to ask you about something that you said regarding your future plans, which is uh, you wanted to write on topics that had nothing to do with graphics. And I think we've talked about a few of those topics already today, but is it just that you feel like mm, you don't really want to talk that much more on the topic? Or are you just eager to explore new territory or just go in a completely different direction? So I have many, many ideas in, inside my head about, about what, what to write about next. Um, when I was writing The Out of Inside, I thought, honestly, that it was going to be my last book about data visualization, but maybe, maybe perhaps there's another book that I may write going a little bit deeper into my approach and make mm. and explain my approach in a more much more systematic manner than I did in the art of insight. I hint a little bit about the way that I do things, but I don't explain that very explicitly or very systematically. So maybe there's a book in there to be written. This is how I do things in every single case, right? Like a workbook. But again, writing it with the making it very explicit that it's not the way of doing things. It's just my personal way of Maybe, maybe that I have that in the back of my mind. Um, but I, I'm also thinking about writing more popular science books. I mean, I, I tend to believe that how chats lie, even if I, I would not call it a bestseller, had some sort of impact out there. I mean, I've, I've seen departments adopting it as a, as a book for elementary classes on data reasoning and scientific reasoning. So that I think that that's a positive impact in the field. I've seen, for example, which is quite funny. I've seen uh, data science departments adopting the truthful art as an entry-level textbook to data science, even if I didn't write it with that intention. The truthful art is a, a book written by a journalist for journalists to teach elementary descriptive statistics using visualization. That's what the truthful art is about. And maybe that's the reason why it's been adopted in other fields. So maybe writing, I don't know, I have tons of ideas in my mind. I would write, I would like to write a popular book about probability, uncertainty, and confidence, and how those things interplay uh, with each other. But again, a non-technical book, something more for the general public. I would like to write about certain statistical fallacies and paradoxes that I think that are extremely important and that are not written about often for the general public. I'm thinking about the ecological fallacy, for example, or Simpson's paradox, right? Things like that, right? I think that there's a book to be written about those things. And maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe in the future, uh, who knows? I would also like to write a little bit about uh, the, the theme that I spoke about before, how the LGBTQ community and more in particular, the transgender community are misrepresented 
uh, in mainstream media. So a book criticizing that uh, with tons of examples and perhaps providing a better approach to covering uh, the community. That would be another thing that I would really like to write about at some point. But I don't know if I will. <laughs> I don't know whether I will ever be able to write any of these because at the moment I'm just taking a break from from writing, trying to recover a little bit, and you know, taking care of life, taking care of my children, and just waiting a little bit for my brain to heal a little bit more, and then think about what the uh, what the future entails. Yes, it's very ungenerous of me to immediately say, "What's the next thing?" when you've literally just released the last thing but the last thing that you have released honestly i did find it unique and and genuinely inspirational so i appreciate you having the time to come and be with us today appreciate that you wrote and shared the book with us and it's just fantastic to get to talk to you again so it it was great talking to you thank you so much i deeply deeply appreciate these types of conversations as you know fantastic 